Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the On The Record podcast, presented by the Western Weekender. On this podcast, I'm joined by special guests who all have such great stories to tell about Penrith and the role they've played in our city. Today, my guest is Andrew Paik, the director of Westcare, one of the major charities in Penrith and across Western Sydney. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Troy. What a delight. Well, as always, we start with the question, where were you born and where did you grow up? Oh, well, that's probably a bit of a story in itself. I was actually born in the great southern state of South Australia. <laughs> okay, there you go. Wasn't there for long. Um, the pre- the um, Labor Premier of that time, the great the Don Dunstan, had a great vision to build a city right where my dad's farm was. So a wow, uh, okay. bit of government coercement there. We had to sell that farm and move over the border into the Mallee region of northwest Victoria when I was five. So if you've heard of that John Williamson song, The Mallee Boy, well, just think of me. <laughs> and and did, that city, did that city happen? No, it did not. It was it a failed venture. And so the, uh, the farm was, was sold, but... Yep. Well, well, you know what's there today? Have you ever been uh, back there? Yeah, yeah. It's all, um, they actually planted a lot of trees there and sold a lot back to farmers, believe it or not, for use. So, uh, you know, I think it was just one of those things. It was just meant to be. <laughs> and, and that did have an impact, though, on your family. Yeah, the, move in the, the move in the state had a, a pretty yes. significant impact. It did, actually, because a year later, um, sadly, on one level at least, uh, my parents divorced. So, uh, you know, that probably didn't go down through so well. But, but again, once again, through that, different things come out of that. So, uh, yeah, no, my... My um, my dad stayed on the farm. We live. My brother and I live with him. He remarried, had some other kids, and which is great. Um, my mum was uh, quite transient, so lived in many different locations. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get to how you ended up in Penrith um, eventually <laughs> soon. But uh, you are involved in, and look, we've known each other for a, for a long time. Um, of course, in in, in Westcare and and whatnot, but. Um, what about your teen years? Um, because uh, I think you've described it as a misspent youth. Um, I'm, I'm keen to know because you've ended up, of course, doing so much for others uh, through Westcare. But I'm keen to know part of, what, I guess, what drove that is those those misspent years, as you, you call them. Yeah, there's certainly some truth in that. Look, from a very young age, I probably, you know probably started doing things that kids at young age didn't you know I was heavily involved I'm not kidding from those young age from your age you know six seven onwards in theft okay. <laughs> and all kinds of stuff even a bit of substance abuse at a very young age and uh, that just transitioned into um, yeah just a very I think what you call a self-focused um, you know not exactly uh, fruitful productive lifestyle well through my teen years oh yeah, yeah. and what do you think drove that well um, I think a few different things, but, um, uh, well, I know, I note that my father told me years later when that happened, it's pretty sad, you know, I was six and my little brother was four and he said, yeah, yeah. Little brother Jason, he sort of uh, a bit emotional. He said, "You never showed any emotion. It's like nothing was wrong." And I think a lot of that stuff got pushed down and come out in other ways, and uh, just opened myself up to other misguiding influences. And um, yeah, that eventually went on. I was certainly, you know, with a good group of friends. Um, heavy cannabis users. Okay. <laughs> you know that classic example of that pothead where um, excessive and constant, um, like pretty much every day for months on end, might have a few days breaking back into it. Believe it or not, that's me. That was very much me in those years. Yeah. Now, you say believe it or not, because I think people who know you today <laughs> probably wouldn't say that, but do you do you look back on that and go, that has helped in some of the things you do today? Because you probably yeah. approach it with a greater understanding as you deal with people with a, a whole range of complex issues? There is no doubt about that. So, um, And I think it, br- it brings a certainly a, um, just that capacity to connect. We, we do a lot with addiction people. We support a lot of uh, New South Wales health social workers in various age groups and scenes with addiction and, and many other things. But that's a definite priority for us to support that work um, coming straight out of my personal uh, uh, development and also in the in the area of youth and young people um, it's funny you know because I get to speak at different school things and um, various things and um, I sometimes re- uh, just explain I, re- I remember the days back when I were mapping out what sort of job will we do and kind of careers and I wanted something where you didn't have to think too much where you can, <laughs> wouldn't take away from your heavy drug using lifestyle that's a crazy place to be in but that's where I was at at the end of my teens yeah and what stopped that was it was it 
other people stopping it on your behalf or did you decide um, or did something happen? That, Look, um, there was a few things there. Um, number one, I, it's hard to believe I, I meet a lot of 21-year-olds today and they seem a lot younger than I was at that time. <laughs> but uh, I'm not joking. At age 21, I literally felt like a bit of a burned-out hippie and I'm not kidding. And a few of my friends from the day would uh, with that. But no, there's a massive X factor in here. Many people know my story. But um, after years um, of... Uh, Look, look, what it all come down to was a very profound and significant conversion to Christianity. And uh, that really knocked a few people's expectations at that time. I mean, as a kid, um, yeah, like, you know, I was sort of tagged along to different church stuff and really had no interest in it. In fact, I was the bad guy. <laughs> so, so you wouldn't say your family was overly religious? No, my, my dad is, yeah. um, and he's a good man, very good man. And uh, I know it was a very big disappointment to him uh, through a few seasons of my life. They just didn't understand what had happened to this wayward son. But yeah. but uh, what's fun, I mean, I have memories, um, you know, in the early, probably early teen years, you know, you went to what's it called uh, confirmation classes and I was a bad guy that let down the other kids tires and all this kind of stuff that was my highlight of those things and to be honest I um, was quite known for a very negative view of anything religious and anything having said that I always knew there was something more to life I just had that understanding through there so that's very much in my journey and at that age of 21 many things came together at that time I think I really come to that um, in that real valley of decision, so to speak. And at that time is when the power of that Christian gospel just nailed me. I often say, you know, Jesus talks about he will leave the 99 sheep and come after that one. I could not think of a clearer um, explanation of what happened for me. He got me. He, he came after me and he got me and I just know he had something for me to do. And, and was that a, you know, literally, literally click your fingers and it happened or was it something that, that you transitioned, I guess, Look, more I think towards? There was certainly a transition time but there's certainly moments in that um, I think often we focus on those moments which is fair enough but uh, oh no I think sometimes um, we need to just recognise when we've come to the end of ourselves, and we there's that something that we need to dive into and, and to to truly transform us, and that's um, all the <laughs> it's on the record now. That's what happened to me. Yeah. Now, at this point, we're in the late eighties, early nineties. This oh, is nineteen ninety one when I turned okay. twenty one. Big year that yeah. year. Big, Big year. year because you um, you meet your wife in that yeah. year as well. Well, I actually met her. We were a bit of a you know bit of childhood sweetheart thing going on from like age seventeen, but that year was the big year where uh, she come with me on that journey, and uh, yeah, we we got married that year. So which meant just a, what you know a few weeks ago in December, mid December twenty twenty one, we celebrated our thirtieth year anniversary. That's a miracle, you know. I can hear the people <laughs> cheering her on now. <laughs> so, so yeah, thirty years of marriage, yeah. um, which is pretty. Incredible! You got married, uh, as you say, 1991. Um, so that period there, then the early 90s for you, for you and, and your family. What was what was that like? Uh, it was extremely interesting, informative in many ways. Um, I. Um Actually, a lot of it was based around my first job. <laughs> I left school in year eleven, and uh, and my first job for ten years. A lot of things happened over that time. I literally started that job. I started an apprenticeship as a radio technician and putting up television antennas. I never passed that trades that that apprenticeship because I went to Melbourne, got into trouble in my class with <laughs> drug dealers. So look out! But uh, um, however, that ten year period marked um, a transition from being an exceptionally self-focused individual and by the end of that 10-year period uh, was like no I'm here to help you know there's a purpose here and it's others focused Um, certainly that sense of you know beyond that divine and uh, where do we go from here so that that 10-year period that's um, it's a great indicator that that there was definite transformation from being self-focused to very much others focused and professionally, you um, look. I, I speak to a lot of people. They say to me that you'd be perfect in this corporate role and that corporate role around Penrith. They want to get you out of the, uh, the charity <laughs> sector, but you have done the corporate world, yeah, um, oh. pretty significantly. Some of the biggest companies in the world. Look, a fun part of my journey. I mean, um, I uh, well, actually, I'll well, just a bit of a segue in there as well. Part of my just personal journey, because um, we very much. You know, country people. Even when we lived in Western Victoria, we'd just never go to Melbourne. Who want to go there? Yeah. We're country folk. <laughs> but in the midst of all that, I because I'd finished schooling early, 
and uh, like year 11 and and I just always had that sense there's some bigger thing to get my head into and why not I went big picture and I enrolled in a theology degree a Bachelor of Theology in Southern Cross College which happened to be in Sydney so with my little link my daughter's around six months old my son two Josiah and Indigo we um, our little family um, <laughs> Migrated to Chester Hill in Western Sydney. And now, I know, now I know Chester Hill pretty well. My um, <laughs> my uh, grandmother, or well, my my dad, grew up in Bass Hill, um, and my my grandmother and my uncle lived in Bass Hill for uh, for many years. So Chester Hill was often the uh, place you'd have to go to catch the uh, the train and whatever else. So <laughs> yeah. know that area very well. Um, so you've ended up there. Yeah. Well, it was a um, the college, Southern Cross College, is now called and it's moved. And it's now called Alpha Crucius. Many would know that it's based in Parramatta. Great organisation. But back then, or Southern Cross, that actually purchased. An Air Force accommodation base at Chester Hill. So that's where it come from. So here we are, we, you know, um, and mind you, the original plan from day one was to come up, you know, get some kind of education or, you know, uh, infilling of great wisdom (laughs) and then return to the country. Just after we moved up here, I knew we were not going back. We were just meant to be in Sydney. I had no idea what that means. You know, you often hear about the great yeah. stories of faith, you know, <laughs> great Abraham leaving his you know, place of his ancestors. That's us in profound ways. But I didn't know what that was. So, But um, just as things transpired, I finished that degree. And what do you do after you finish a um, three, three-and-a-half-year theology degree? I joined Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, what a ride I had with Coca-Cola. And is this in the, the sales world of Coca-Cola? Well, the original the... thing was I had been doing a bit of sales contracting for a um, – and you talk about cutting your teeth in sales. Um, I had been – imagine this for a job, uh, Troy. Um, you know, imagine someone coming around to your home as an ex-Telstra home customer, okay? Someone knocks at your door – between 2 o'clock in the afternoon and 8 o'clock at night, and their mission is to sign you back to Telstra. <laughs> now, I did that for three months specifically for personal development. I yeah. felt it was something I had to do. No one understood that at that time. But again, it's been many of these many of these experiences on this, this great faith journey. But Potentially no tougher gig than yeah. that. I, I remember I um, between gigs at one point, I, I was looking for a job somewhere, and um, I, I did a trial uh, doing a very similar thing in the, in the electricity industry, uh, trying to make people switch to a different electricity provider, and you just get bundled into a car, driven to a suburb that you'd just never been in Sydney before, and all right, start walking the streets. Uh, safe to say I didn't, um, I didn't actually complete the trial, and when I said to them, I don't think this is for me, he dropped me at a bus stop. And uh, I really didn't even know where I was in Sydney, but, but you know, good on you for three months, because wow. it's... Knocking on people's doors, you have no idea what's behind the door, um, and, and you're probably the last person they want to see. Oh, I tell you what, I'm, I'm a very, I think, you know, people say I'm a particularly gracious person, but let me tell you, when someone comes around my place knocking at that time when they're trying to sell something, they're not welcome, but, uh, and particularly the, the mission there to sign ex-Telstra people back to Telstra, so it's crazy. However, I knew beforehand it was personal development. Now, at that time, I was doing this in the afternoons and evenings. Meanwhile, my lovely wife, Delwyn, had been a motorbike postie, so she was out in the okay. mornings. So to be honest, at the end of that period, I thought, what's next? And was like, okay, I just need something to settle down for a few months, just a nine-to-five kind of job, and we work out what the next step is on this great life journey. And uh, there happened to we were living at um, South Wentworthville at that time. There happened to be a something advertised, did not say the company, and it was just a, a contact centre type job. I thought, you know what, I'll just do that for a month or two or three and we'll see what's next. What I had no idea until I'd done the interview at the agency was it was Coca-Cola Amatil in North Mead. And uh, before you know it, they were, they were looking for people with a, two people with a background, a bit of sales, a bit of good customer service, and uh, me and this other young lady joined a special team with the Vent New South Wales vending team. Before you know it, I had become the first um, – the, the, the Coca-Cola vending team is a unique team. It's their highest sort of retail earnings um, – uh, it's the only part of their business that sells direct retail and okay. very profitable. And suddenly I was one of those – area sales. There was five across all of Sydney. So, so this is in getting vending machines into locations? Yes, it is. Yep. And in the corporate and a whole range of business environments. And it was just an incredible adventure for me, to be honest. So um, I don't believe probably anyone has had a journey like I had at Coca-Cola, Amatil, um, and all kinds of things happen. And the opportunities that would come my way, for instance, back when my beautiful daughter Indigo was six, she actually 
well, this is a bit sad and a bit serious, but turned out okay. She had a brain tumour, and uh, she qualified for a Make-A-Wish Foundation thing, and she wanted to go to the Gold Coast theme parks. She'd never been there, so we did that on the first week of November that year. The day I arrived back in our office, something was wrong, and the uh, market... um, uh, manager of the vending of New South Wales, he called me in and I thought, what have I done wrong? There's something serious here. And he explained that one of the district managers in the fulfilment team had been busted drink driving the week I was away <laughs> and they needed to second someone in immediately before summer and not re-advertise the role. And even though I was the last salesperson on the team, I was the first they picked up and that was a huge promotion in that uh, upset some of the other sales guys. They couldn't understand it, but he'd noticed that I had a good connection with the filling contractors which a lot of the salespeople normally didn't. And anyway, this great journey continued on. We did all kinds of crazy stuff, but uh, great journey there. And then a few, I actually joined a friend in business for a while. That didn't work out. And then I ended up working for Vizzy, actually for Corrugated Carton Products, based in Penrith. And uh, 35 people went for that role, and thankfully I got it because I just needed a job that was based in Penrith with a car, and it was just a great job at Vizzy. Because at that point you'd obviously moved to Penrith yes. somewhere in the line. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But just to, to date back, obviously that would have been a difficult time for your family as well. You said yeah. you're, uh, your daughter who was six at the time. Yes, that was um, um, that was pretty tough there because, um, yeah, she's a sweet girl, and she's the sweetest girl you'll ever meet. And uh, she, uh, yeah, thank God for my wife who literally took her to five or six doctors. And okay. uh, in the end, they said, uh, you know, we're going to book him for a, a scan at, at Westmead. Now, I'd, I was working around the corner at Coke, and I'd got there a little bit late. And uh, anyway, they'd gone in and had the scans, and I waited from when they come out. They were just pushing her in a wheelchair. Not that she, I don't think she needed a wheelchair. Was, oh. And my wife took my hand because she had seen something on the scan, and we went to the emergency room there. And uh, the doctor eventually brought in the uh, scans and showed a, a, um, a, a four and a half centimetre uh, diameter tumour was there. They didn't know what it was at that time, mm. uh, whether it was benign or, or a bit more serious. And, and I'm not joking. I'm not into out-of-body experiences or anything weird like that. But I'm telling you right now, in that moment, faster than you could blink your eye, I was taken to the top corner of the room. And I'm telling you now, a voice told me, this child shall live and shall not die. And through that period, I was also assured that she would be a blessing to a generation. Now, that's a bit out there for people, let me tell you. She, it, it was a medulloblastoma. It's a very serious tumour. Um, we met a lot of children with less severe instances that she had. They all died, very sad, or several died, and things like that happened. Um, but she subsequently went on and had the full, um, you know, the brain surgery, the radiation, the chemotherapy. And cut a long story short, she is now a blessing to a generation. She's teaching today. Penrith Christian School, and uh, she has a gift for young children. Um, their parents tell me that. So uh, she's taught at a couple of schools locally here. So that's turned out to be a good news story, yeah, believe you me. No absolutely. Absolutely. From, from tough times uh, comes oh, a, a great result. And um, yeah, that's oh. a very difficult time to go through. I mean, tough for a six year old, seven year old to. To understand yes. what's going on as oh, well, it's a tough sort of thing. But and mind you, the the while it was whilst she was literally in recovery from surgery that the an email come through advertising the uh, Coke vending roll. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how these things work. But anyway, and that was a great journey. And and then um, uh, a friend of mine. Um, a manager, actually, I'd worked with at Coke. He was now working for Chamberlain, which is the world's largest manufacturer of garage door openers. Yep. And uh, cut a long story short, um, I had a great time at Chamberlain. I think it was seven or eight years there. And uh, But what I must highlight through all this is, um, again, I, I like to believe I live this life. Look, I'm not the one writing the book. Someone else is writing this book, and a lot of these things all work together for good for this purpose. And I used to think, look, I know I've been put here um, to really help people and do a lot of things. I just had that sense. Did not know what that was. I just thought it would be some kind of Christian ministry thing or what. I just did not know. And uh, here I am. I'd be driving out to, you know, Canberra, Batemans Bay, Griffith, whatever, and thinking, is this really what I'm meant to be doing? I love this job. I love the people. And uh, really, it was a you're looking after your dealer network, you know. So I'd go to say Wagga, and there'd be Troy and Stacey as our Merlin dealers for Chamberlain there. And I'd go down the road, and there'd be, you know, John and Diane of Batemans Bay. And over the years, you're quite quite close, and it's mm. it's not like a salesy thing at all, at all. You know, it's more relational based. Anyway, little did I know that uh, all of that was to prepare me for these days to come. 
Now, tell me about the decision or how you end up in Penrith. Because in the midst of all of this, you, you <laughs> somehow end up in uh, in Penrith, and so yes. begins a, yes. a journey that continues today. A profound journey there, once again. And again, it all comes out of this lovely faith-based lifestyle, I must say. But Because um, keeping in mind, you know, I'd just done a theology degree, and I was thinking, oh, you know, and I was attending, helping to start a great little church in Parramatta and helping them. And, and uh, it's like, well... I don't know. I just know we're meant to go somewhere. I don't know. Where is it? Sounds very... When I hear people talk like this sometimes, they sound a little bit, you know, a little bit fruity or something. This is not fruity. This is very real. We knew we were on a quest here somewhere. And anyway, somehow we were led to attend. Back then it was called Penrith Christian Life Centre with Jack Haynes and the crew at Orchard Hills. And eventually they changed their name to the name of their conference at that time, which is called Imagine Nations Church. So that is the reason how we come to be in Penrith, number one, and certainly led to how we come to be at Westcare. Yeah. And so what what, what was... The decision, though, to move to Penrith. Mm. What, what did you say? Oh, yeah, Penrith's where, where, oh, we can, where we can be. It was, well, the first step was I simply knew, my wife and I knew, that we were meant to attend that local church at Penrith. Mm-hmm. And we based that move 100% around that at that time. Okay. It was not just, oh, yeah, we'll go to this church. No. There was, a like other decisions we'd made, the decision to... To move to Sydney, a decision to get into these different job roles, there was something else. And uh, it's just as genuine as I can express. That's simply how it was. And, uh, yeah, because there had come a time back when I was that 21-year-old, you know, pothead, that I had said, no, I, I no longer live for myself. And once you open up to live for for others and then the divine, if you like, um, things like this happen. And, of course, now I know many people who are uh, discovering this journey for themselves but but uh that's what it was yeah and and then one day um i was there on the because i used to travel a lot for that role it was great but uh jack haynes pastor jack haynes he's a great guy um who heads up imaginations he he saw me one day then he said you're around this week you want to catch up for a coffee i thought ah absolutely i was you know and uh I just knew there was an edge to that as well. I thought, <laughs> now, have I done or said something a bit wrong? But no, no, it's funny how you often, that's that young six-year-old again coming yes, out. Yes. But uh, but no, I knew something was going on. And we had a good coffee in uh, Glenmore Park there. And uh, he explained, because he's also the um, the chairman of the Westcare board. And uh, he said, look, we're looking to make some changes at Westcare. And uh, we're actually looking to put a full-time person on and a few other things. And he said, is that something you would be interested in? And he absolutely knew it too, I think. I, he absolutely nailed me. I knew that this was the thing. <laughs> so at that point, though, you know, going into working in, in a charity at Westcare, this is about 2013, 2014? Uh, yes, that, that conversation was uh, June 2013, but I began at Westcare in January 2014. So I've just crossed over okay. eight, eight years, yeah. And interestingly... You, you at this point are in in you know pretty good sales roles, yes. and I imagine um, with that comes um, comes a pretty good living as as far yes. as you know financially is concerned. Definitely, I'm not sure that um, that, that charity gigs pay as much. <laughs> was that a tough call? Was that a tough? It decision? should have been a tough call. In fact, I went home from that coffee because I told Jack on um, Pastor Jack on the spot. I said, "Oh yeah, I'm in." <laughs> I hadn't even consulted with my wife. Now, is that a very unwise man? But thankfully, when I got home and told her, she knew. Thank God for that. Because what it also meant was my salary had been slashed under half, under half. And not only that, it was at the stage in in um, you know in that uh, timeline with the world there where my salary is about to leap up a lot more. And they reminded me of that. They knew <laughs> I wasn't leaving this for money purposes. And I had great relationships with that organisation. And they would cheekily remind me from time to time in my first year or two the kind of salary that I would be on if I was still there mm. in opportunities, cheekily. Um, but everyone knew it was not about the money. And what's remarkable is that, um, you know, day-to-day, you know, bottom-line stuff, we really did not see the difference. At that time, Delwyn, who'd been on her own journey, and now she'd done a Bachelor of Fine Arts with Honours, and she began teaching, and just a few things just come together there. Um that, uh, yeah, day to day, it's hard to believe with such a loss of income, but we were provided for in ways that it just, just 
thing. There was a continuum. It's remarkable. Out of interest, you know, those roles that you did at that chain, do they still exist in the modern times? Because I know things are a lot different yeah. these days. No, you know, they do. They, I mean, yeah. a lot of, because um, I'm still in contact with the, that world a bit. So uh, things with the COVID and everything, um, that's certainly changed a lot of dynamics. But now they're back on the road, those travelling guys. So those, those roles certainly exist mm. in that. The Coca-Cola world's to- changed a lot, that that many you know it's a long time ago but the uh, that chamberlain corporate model is generally still the same yeah sometimes when people leave the corporate big corporate world they almost leave with a bit of a um i guess a bit of a disdain for that world but you seem to still talk with a lot of passion about those those companies look you don't have a coca-cola in front of you but um (laughs) um you seem to still have a lot of passion there. Like a lot of people say, oh, that corporate world, hated it, glad I'm out. But but you have a bit of passion. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. I, love, very, I think because I love the people on, on all sides, uh, connected well with the um – not everyone does in different departments of organisations, can I say, but it's always a priority for me. And a, to be honest, a key to life. You're, if you're a salesperson and you are looking after the accounts team, the warehouse team and the service team, you're a very wise <laughs> move, that one. But uh, but certainly the um, that whole – but more so than any of that, I will always recognise that that's very formative to um, – literally make the person that I am today and a lot even though I'm not like thinking of you know um, strategically analyzing all sales things and this that and the other I really do not but it's sort of been embedded through that very positive time I remember even when I went to for Coca-Cola someone from Coke my manager actually um asked me because he knew of my like Christian faith background he just thought I'd hate everything corporate you know Mm. and and look I'm sure and you know a lot of things is grounds for that kind of thing but that wasn't my experience at all i was grateful for them had a great experience left well and will always favorably love that and i there's no doubt about it that poured into me that formative experience much of what i am and what i do today yeah, and it's in, it is interesting that because and, and then as we move into Westcare, big businesses obviously helped Westcare along the way as well. I often look at that. There's often such a, you know, big business and mega business can be looked at with a lot of disdain, but a lot of big companies do a lot of good for yeah. for a lot of people. I know that about it. January 2014. Then, what does Westcare look like when you walk <laughs> in at, at that point? And, and we'll get through to, to what it looks like look, today. But but what does it look like in January eight years ago? Look, Westcare was has always been a sweet organisation. It's like the was you know like a lot of charities operated at a great local churches. A lot of good people involved. Um, a lot of volunteers. Um, you know, three or four part time, like you know, two maybe three day a week people. You know, sort of. Um, on staff, but but um, mind you, there was a history to Westcare because uh, we proudly say that uh, we've been serving Penrith since 1977, and that's because um, back in '96, two churches come together, which meant two charities come together, and one of those charities had been called Distress Call, um, was registered on April uh, 1977, so. Um, there's a history there. So I, like, from day one, I've had this feeling, you know what, it's not about Westcare being built. It's like a stream that's been flowing in and streams have come together that flow into the Penrith community. That mindset helps me rather than just you're out there building something. And that's one reason that we we like to put the background of the Nepean River on some of our uh, promotional activity. It's not just for the local uh, identification. It's also this sense that hey, there's a stream of living water flowing into this place, and it's our honour to, to be part of facilitating that. But but back then, no, the foundational service was certainly our Westcare's emergency relief service, providing um, food and all kinds of you know to this. Well, <laughs> not quite at this day, which we'll go into later, I'm sure. But uh, but the emergency relief service is fully functioning. A great little op shop. Um, had a, a one little cupboard in a room which they called our care packs, <laughs> care packs division, and uh, some great correctional care things for Emu Plains Correctional Centre, Bolwara Homes there, and, and Cobham at Warrington. So that's pretty much the scope of Westcare at that day. And uh, yes, uh, which, great work had been done for many years. And I guess you coming on full time then allowed Westcare yeah. to expand into a whole range of other services. I guess a Definitely. lot of people now would know Westcare as. Uh, provides a lot of assistance to domestic violence victims. Yeah. Um, now, 
in in that space? What why did why did Westcare get involved in that space? What was the because well, it's pretty a, significant to your service. It, it is, it is. Um, a few things. Keeping in mind our um, well, back then we used to say restoring dignity and hope to people in need, which is sweet. We still use that from time to time, but there'd been a little tagline off the side. Uh, you know, which was local needs met by local people. And, of course, when I really sort of engaged, I that was it. That's the one, because that, that encompasses many things about West Kent. And when it comes to domestic violence, I mean, we'd been serving one way or another around the fringes of the sector and helping refuges and things for some time, but in small practical ways. But uh, a, lot of, a lot of people wouldn't realise, perhaps, is that Penrith local government area is number two in metropolitan New South Wales for the number of police-reported domestic violence incidents just behind Blacktown, which is Mount Druitt. So it's a huge local need in Penrith that is incredibly underserviced. It really is a scary, um, a huge need which just does not get addressed anywhere near as as well as it ought to. So it had been something on our hearts for a while, but but this particular, what really pushed that in was, again, another coffee with Pastor Jack Haynes, <laughs> our chair, board chairman, and uh, a couple of times over the years for you, but he's, you know, great. Um, and this particular coffee, he said, I really feel we need to really get into that space, which was music to my ears. It was something we mm. were in and always wanting to do more in that space. So what we I did then was literally immerse myself. By the way, even prior to starting at Westcare, I'd seen a presentation and um, uh, and they said how a lot of charities or organisations, churches, whatever, get a great vision for an idea in their community and they'll charge off, you know what, half the time they haven't even consulted with all the other players that are operating in that sector, in that area and other things like that. So from day one, I really thought it was important to, to, to you know, really work on that. So when uh, um, Pastor Jack had said, you know, let's, from a board perspective, let's look at this, I spent, I think it was about, Eight months, six to eight months, immersing myself. I was. They wouldn't even let me join the Nepean Domestic Violence <laughs> Network because that's only for frontline DV services. And anyway, we got through that with our friends at council. And uh, but to this day, I'm pretty much the only male that's ever attended that meeting. It was a male policeman coming for a while, a few years ago. But <laughs> it's just, it's just funny too. But but again, talking. Plenty of coffee catch-ups, interviews, uh, all these frontline people, including services in based in Penrith, I'd never even heard of, which is a shame. Mm. And just, again, determining the needs, because we're local needs met by local people. And when you talk to the frontliners of the needs, wow. So I mapped the, the Fresh Start Go um, Penrith Domestic Violence Program in direct response to those um, needs ascertained by the members of the European Domestic um, Network and the services that Westcare helps to provide. We're not just talking. And this is one of the great things I think about Westcare is that if people donate to Westcare, if they support Westcare, they see the the reality of of the help on the ground. So sometimes you can you know you want to help something and you you donate to a charity. You've really got no idea where it ends up, where it goes. Um, in Westcare's case, um, you are helping at the rawest level. So if someone leaves a domestic violence situation and you you pretty much step in and immediately can you take us through what happens in a, in a case like that and then i'm guessing unfortunately you've seen a lot of them over the years seen some shockers really and it, mind you the whole thing is can be very complex <laughs> in many many ways mm. um there's many sides to this often too which you know not really nice cute stories but um but again working together so looking at those needs what we found was um so you'll have um now, can I say, through our direct channels, our emergency relief, a few other channels, we get the occasional, like a lot of people say, yeah, I'm, I'm in domestic violence, and you drill down, and you're like, you know what, you sort of are, kind of, mm. but oh no. So we get the, we get a sum, a small percentage through our direct channels, but oh no, the really serious situations come through other services that we're close with, and there are huge needs there. Obviously, there's a great need for accommodation. The crisis accommodation, and particularly for mums with more than a few children. Mm. So our um, one thousand safe sleeps units um, uh, are ideal to house large families. We launched that project originally for single homeless men, and I always felt that 
There's two units we have. Always felt the layout. I thought, this is really not for single men, you know. Uh, you can put a couple in there, but no, this is more family-based. So what's going to happen here? So eventually, that's exactly what happened. Um, so now we've had... Um, it may be five, but there's four or five women who have had six children fleeing very full-on domestic violence situations who have stayed in our units. They just would not be able to be safely housed anywhere else in Penrith. It's very complicated. And I guess part of that reason is that if they were to go to a family or something, like the, unfortunately the perpetrator can easily track oh, them down. So for definitely. you, the privacy and security of those yes. units has been very pretty private, critical. Very hidden. It's great. And, of course, that's just though we've had many with five kids, four kids, three kids, mm. etc. But, again, it's that particular. And we go crazy. So, um, again, when you meet these ones, and especially kids involved. You know what? I think that string um, definitely ties back to my uh, childhood too, Troy. When I and our whole team feel the same, but they all know there's young ones in there, especially babies, you know, they get extra special treatment. But uh, there's something about those kids. So I, uh, we, we, our services, yes, great accommodation and, you know, all your personal care items, food and all this stuff. But oh no, every child who stays in our unit, they get toys to keep. They're offered toys mm. to keep. They are offered... Um, uh, our op shop is nearby, and every person who stays in our units are given vouchers for eight items of clothes. In fact, they can have a lot more than that if they ask. But, but so we make sure their practical needs are service like no other. You will not find, uh, I don't believe, um, domestic violence accommodation where they're practically cared for as much as ours. And the case management is done by our partners at DV West. That's Penrith's largest uh, domestic violence service. Close friends of ours for many years. So, and and others engage as well. So all of this, but it's that taking them, and I don't get to meet every one of these women. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, but Margaret certainly does, our emergency support services manager. I call her the Mother Teresa of Penrith. <laughs> she has a gift for connecting with the women and connecting with the children. How long can someone stay in, in those units? Look, it, it varies. We've had situations where they've stayed in there. The odd one, I mean, this is really crisis accommodation, so mm. it's not meant to be, you know, the longer term. But um, we've had some situations where they've stayed in there for several months. Mm. Incredibly complex situations. We've said, you know what, they stay. They, they, they're not moving into transitional housing. We're keeping them here. They will get their most practical care here. Otherwise, they can stay... Uh, well, we've had, you know, they'll stay for two days and, and they've another <clears throat> solution or whatever. But commonly, because um, when we originally set it up, we had said, oh, yeah, two weeks, two weeks, and we'll stretch it out to three if that needs to be. That just wasn't real, you know. Uh, many do fit within that time, but otherwise it's uh, it could be three weeks. It, it fluctuates a little, yeah. Do you have a look, I'm sure there's <laughs> stories, some great stories, uh, some great outcomes, also some poor ones, but do you... Um, you know, normally what keeps people going is the great outcomes. Yeah. I presume you've had stories of, hey, if it wasn't for those two weeks, oh, yeah. I wouldn't be where I am today, uh, maybe years down the track. Yeah. So uh, that must you know, be pretty fulfilling for everyone at Westcare, yourself, Margaret, and the team. No doubt about it. I mean, some of these, especially the ones you're able to really connect with. So there's one, certainly we mentioned, will not mention this one's name because she now lives permanently in Penrith. Um, this young lady, <coughs> excuse me, had come and, she had six children, and she'd run away a couple of times before. And uh, this time, the, the the male partner had been bashing her original son. She had a 19-year-old son. And now it wasn't just her. She was beating He was punching and stuff. He was beating him up. And so, no, this is it, to run away forever. The little one turned one, I think, one or two in our units while they stayed. You know, they stayed for a while. So mum and six kids. We don't normally have 19-year-olds in there, but this is an approved situation. Mm. And let me tell you, that... The journey that 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 lady um, and her beautiful they will light they light the place up, and to see like the, that's the reason we do this stuff. What happened with that family? Um, the just incredible. There's some really serious ones. Like just briefly, I'll say um, there was a situation once again. Our team knows what I'm like with little ones, and I'd been told there was a mum with a newborn baby coming in. I said, okay. And I was coming in a, that afternoon or the next hour or something. And then, and okay, so everything was geared up. We had all the baby stuff ready to go, etc. Newborn baby and a three-year-old. And uh, then the call come through. Oh, no, the um, it's a very serious situation, particularly aggressive domestic violence where the police were looking for the perpetrator. And uh, she was fearful. In the end, she, I think it's okay to say this, she went to her parents, it is, uh, parents' place up, up north. Um, just north of Sydney, <clears throat> and uh, 
Anyway, I got that message while I was standing in the front bar of the, the Arms Hotel talking to another Troy that we know, Troy. Yes. And uh, I would never, never normally be discussing domestic violence situations with uh, community colleagues like that, but I just happened to mention, oh, you know, um, and I mentioned there was particularly aggressive perpetrator, the poli- all police looking for him, and uh, that she'd gone to her parents' house. And this, <clears throat> our brother, Troy Tico, as we know him, um, had said, well, that's, you know, wouldn't he find them? If it, you know, wouldn't he be able to find them? Went to the parents' place, and oh yeah, well, guess what? That's exactly what happened. He actually tracked them down up there, followed them around, and she'd gone into a change room at a Westfield Plaza. He had attacked them. He had physically raped the mum, and the three-year-old had, had witnessed all this and uh, gruesome situation and um, everything, but. The, what really got me, like, that's just the worst, poss- that's the worst mm. story I've heard. But what really nailed it later on was um, Vanessa from DV West shared, well, you know, that girl, the time that they had her with them uh, under their care and and uh, case management, she had not spoken since that instant. I mean, that just stays with me, that stuff. It's mm. like, gosh. And these are the, like, that's just horrific. We see the absolute worst human behaviour imaginable on one end of the spectrum, and then I must say, through the support of others and just different people who just live to serve in this place, we see the absolute best of of, uh, human behaviour. And if we can somehow play a role in bringing all that together, let me tell you, we've achieved our purpose. And some of the best you speak of obviously comes from the way that the Penrith community has responded to Westcare. Now, Westcare now has a whole bunch of different services. There are you know, probably more than a dozen different services that Westcare offers. And this needs to be funded by largely by donations, yeah. um, and, and you've done that through uh, the big fundraising dinner that we yes. uh, we have annually. Of course, there's been a, a couple of times uh, that's been cancelled in, in recent <laughs> times, but hopefully it'll be back uh, later this year. Uh, and other different charities and auctions and whatnot as well. Yeah. Does it still blow you away how much the uh, the Penrith community gets oh, behind Westcare? Totally, I can't say it enough. And it's like a look. We're not just a charity. We, we just don't want to be just a charity. When I started at this role, I was told several things. I just knew in my heart. One was, be in this community. Don't just be that charity person comes around looking, you know, don't be that person. Be a community. And little did I really understand at that time that uh, Penrith is such a community. You know, they say it's like a country town. Well, it's, it's not quite. It's not. It's not. But I can see why they say that. Because the community cares for its own. And a lot of people have been on a journey themselves, I find. So one of the um, unfortunate things about being a local needs met by local people organisation is that you do not often fit into funding models for government funding. Mm. So we've, for instance, the housing, um, every few years I'll have an expression of interest for temporary accommodation housing funding. And we'll put a submission in and we'll always talk to them about it after it and they go, Wow, we don't know how you're doing that out there at Penrith, so it blows them away. But the problem is, for their funding model, because we're like a niche solution, a niche, so you don't attract that. But what we do um, attract is wonderful community-minded people who want to meet see needs met in Penrith. And we see that on all levels. And I'm amazed how the local small business community um in particular, it's just really connected. And I think they, um, I think it comes a time of trust. In fact, one well-known guy in town, um, he told me once he wanted to meet up and he said, you know what? He said, we don't know if we can trust you yet. You know, we, we know you through Jeremy and Aaron and this, that and the other at the coffee club and been to a couple of your events. And, and he said, anyway, as a matter of this, you know, him and his wife are met with and um, he Subsequently, handed over a fund for our Christmas appeal that year. Well, let me tell you, he trusts us now, heart and soul. And but but he put into words what often people don't quite do, can't do themselves. Is it's a thing of trust. And uh, if you're just some flyby night or something, what's not? If you're not being real, you're not going to cross over into that trust that trust threshold. And once you do trust over that, cross over that, something happens and we have certainly seen that the buy-in on many many levels you know we're um to be pretty much a 100 percent community funded organization people from all over just can't get their heads around that yeah now for people you know people in the business community certainly would know about Westcare. for those listening out there 
uh, at an individual level um, as Westcare moves forward? What can they do to support Westcare? Because can it be as simple as, hey, I'm I'm getting rid of a, a couch. Now, I'm not talking about the couch that's got your dog stains on it and, and 22 rips in it, but can it be as simple as, hey, can I donate this? Or is it is it monetary? Is it what, what, what do you what do you need from the community? Look, it's all those things. We're, we're, I wouldn't say we actually have a need of a lot of furniture stuff often because I get flooded with uh, requests, and at the moment in particular, um, it's sort of storage management somewhat limited. However, by all means, you know, pass those inquiries through. Um, so, but we do distribute a lot of under and P and Homestar program, just other activities. We give a lot of stuff away, a lot of furniture and stuff. So that's that's in the picture. Um, the look, we run a, a very lean model at Westcare, and uh, pretty much the um, from a base, the more money financial uh, contribution uh, comes their way. Quite simply, the more work we can do. Mm. So, and I'm touch. I mean, let me tell you. Yep, you can have a great <coughs> business or clubs or. Grateful for all their engagement in our world, but I see those. Um, you know, we've had several like like single mothers who put that ten dollar bank transfer every fortnight. Let me tell you, that gets me. I'm telling you now, there's mm. something about participating in that, and I I'm, it, it touches me m- more than you'd know, um, especially when you kind of know some of these people a bit and they've been on their journey, and that's their way. It's just there's something about that. So, finally, I mean, even our a lot of our fundraising, you know, we, we do various fundraising things, but what people also might help them understand is that um, none of that pays for my salary. Um, every year, um, our great friends at Family, at Imaginations, they they make a contribution every year, and guess what that is? It's my salary. So I'm out there fundraising, and none of it's not even paying for my salary. And I like that model as well. Yes, absolutely. So it's like straight to that. We have minimal, like really minimal um, administration costs, that kind of thing, and um, there's two of us full-time, three part-time, and many, many volunteers. So we, I think that helps as well. You're not going to get gobbled up in some administrative thing and get a fraction. Uh, we like to cover our bases, and the funds we raise gets poured directly into um, direct services, and that's just somewhere we want to be. You know, when I first started, the team used to joke. I, I didn't really think it was that funny, but they joked. They said, you know what? The only people who know about Westcare are the people who use our services <laughs> and all the volunteers who work for Westcare. And they used to think that was funny. I thought, yeah, that's wrong. It shouldn't be like that. It's a great organisation. And everyone should know. Like all these, you know, uh, sensational organisations around town. Well, I believe that's changed now and it continues to change. And people discover and they just think, yeah. And they just, we together, let me tell you, we can do anything. And we are, you know. Now, one thing uh, though that uh, that hit you hard was was I mean, COVID hit everyone. But for, let's move on from COVID because over the Christmas period, uh, you had a, had a particularly uh, problematic situation that <laughs> continues to go on, and it was you guys really looking for uh, for even more help and potentially a home. Because uh, yeah, can you run us through what happened yeah. with the other uh, fire there on uh, Henry Street? Well, that was right out of left field, I must say. <clears throat> on um uh, just a couple of nights, a few nights prior, three or four nights prior, there was a the, the big downpour, flooding rain we had. Um, on the Thursday prior in uh, December, second week of December. And uh, anyway, it flooded some of our building, not our offices, but we're in a council-owned building, Community Connections Building in Henry Street, and there's like a dozen organisations in that you know building. We've got a couple of suites in there. Anyway, a couple, several of them were flooded. They had just flooded under the roof and the ceiling tiles collapsed and all that kind of stuff. And to uh, deal with that, well, by, can I just say, this is not the official line. Council is saying this is not the official situation, but my fiery mates tell me this is what happened. So I'm just saying what they tell me. <laughs> Don't upset anyone. And they had these fans going 24 hours a day to, to dry the carpet and uh, allegedly, <laughs> uh, one of those caught on fire, and burnt the building out. So, um, you know, that that was an... Because uh, I'd heard reports there was a fire in Henry Street. Had no idea it was us until we were driving to the office. Suddenly, Channel 9 had got their cameras in my face and they wanted me to talk and then Channel 7 got involved and 2GB. So before you know it, that Monday went a lot different than uh, we had planned. <clears throat> um, and it's... Let me tell you what I also said on that morning to a few people. I said, yeah, look, this is terrible, really. I said, look, we're, we're going to be all right because I just know how how this stuff works in this town, but 
but I really feel for these other organisations and I've subsequently learned, it won't be common knowledge and I probably shouldn't even say anything, but there's a couple of them at least that are going to close down after that and uh, that's really sad. They're grassroots organisations that had other challenges as well and this is just popping over edge. So that's tragic. What's happened to us is not so tragic as such. Sure, if you saw the footage of our administration office, <laughs> it's just a burnt, melted, charred mess. Um, our emergency relief service wasn't burned out as such, but in uh, well, parts of it was, but it's more sort of, it's just total, everything's being written off, so we're mm. right. And so Westcare's technically homeless right now. But of course, still doing uh, doing great things, and you've had great support from different places, yeah. of course, oh. to, to house Westcare, which is... Just incredible. I mean, Penrith Panthers have been in contact, they're going to, very good, generous support of Westcare again, um, we're working through there, uh, giving us some awesome um, office space um, in the uh, you know the western um, part of the stadium there mm-hmm. which is just sensational we're working very closely with Penrith City Council to because um, our big thing that we're missing at the moment is our emergency relief service where we distribute our food and very important frontline service so um, that's something we'll be working through for a little while to be honest so um, that but also in the midst of all that um, it was the uh, being on the team and certainly the 2GB um, segment where it got out that we on that day we actually had 60 Christmas hampers ready to go they're ready to go they're going to mm. go that day you know and all this other stuff in there prepared for Christmas and next thing you know it was out there that oh <laughs> well we got so flooded with support we had um Meat companies, you know, Strathfield giving us 40 hams. We had biscuit factories giving us stuff. We had GWS giants get on board delivering 60 hampers and many, many, many other things. So much so it come down to it. I looked at the number of hampers we gave out in the next uh, three or four days and we got to 935 Christmas hampers. Let me tell you, that's that was the biggest, of course, once you see that number. Well, you can't stop there, can you? <laughs> so I quickly rang up uh, Lana <laughs> from Mama Lana's and said, mate, if we can bring together 65 hampers for you, right? You know, she said, really? And we really, beautiful, we got 1,000 Christmas hampers. That would never have happened. And let me tell you, it's not just dumping hampers. You can dump hampers across the sector. Oh, no. Our in- focus goal for our Christmas appeal is really to give Christmas to people who otherwise simply wouldn't have it. And we work with the like 30 plus organisations to find the most vulnerable in Penrith at Christmas time. It's remarkable. And this year we found 1,000 homes in our Christmas appeal. Can you believe that? And that, I guess, shows just uh, in, in that example there, the, uh, the Penrith community and the yes. business community's yeah, connection yeah. With, um, with Westcare. Right L- last question, and look, I really encourage people to go out there, just Google Westcare, simple as that, and you'll find the website and, and all of the information about Westcare and, and the services that they provide if you, if you need their services, but, uh, but also if you are able to donate, then jump on. What is the future for Westcare, but also for you in Westcare? I mean, you've been with the organisation, you say, eight years now. Is this it? Is this the end game? Is Westcare, Westcare the end game for you? Or are we going to see you out there uh, with some Coca-Cola vending machines again at some point? <laughs> yeah, no, I used to jokingly say, well, not jokingly say, I used to say, I'm going to die in this role until 2018 when I had a pulmonary pulmonary embolism and literally nearly died. So I stopped saying those words right now. Incredibly, on, on the day or the day before your uh, your big fundraising dinner, which oh. um, is something that you would not miss for the world. You, you would. You just can't believe the timing of that. It had nothing to do with the dinner. It actually, the symptoms had been there for a week and a half. You know, when you're feeling like you're coming down with something, it's like, no, our <laughs> biggest night of the year, I'm going to push through. Having no idea is blood clot stopping blood flow to my lungs. But anyway, no, I can't, I simply cannot envisage myself doing anything else but living the rest of my life serving this awesome community with Westcare. All right, well, Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we do encourage people to go out there and, uh, and support Westcare. Yeah, I think we all agree that your uh, enthusiasm for Westcare is infectious and uh, we really appreciate you joining us. Awesome. What a great delight to talk to you, Troy. Thank you. There he is, Andrew Paik from Westcare. I hope you enjoyed our chat. A reminder that On The Record is released every Monday. Just search Western Weekend wherever you listen to podcasts and hit the subscribe button. On The Record is produced by The Western Weekender and recorded at the studios of My88. Check out westernweekender.com.au. We'll see you next time.